So we don't really talk. Well, it's in the very end of the show, but uh, I don't think anybody listens to that part. Um, but we, uh, if you'd like to talk to us at all, um, we have a subreddit that we check out uh, occasionally, not as often as we probably should, but you know we try and keep up on it, which is uh, reddit.com/r/marxismtoday. And you know, there's lots of good commentary by uh, listeners, lots of good discussion there and you know if you have something to say thoughts or whatnot you know pop in say hey say what you like what you hate um well you know should we beat thad every time he eats (laughs) (laughs) a valid question um but yeah just you know a better way to engage with us uh if that is your desire Hi, this is Red Wagner, and you're listening to Marxism Today. I'm joined by Tony and Thad today, and today I want to talk about the future. Uh, I'm going to approach this uh, via a framework that I think is laid out really nicely by a thinker named Jeremy Rifkin. Now, Jeremy Rifkin is not a Marxist thinker. He's, I don't know, I guess I'd say somewhere in the liberal realm. This is the basic idea. Uh, I'll summarize kind of what he has to say about the future and what he kind of does with it, and then we'll have a bunch of time to kind of say our reactions and our thoughts and and kind of add and build upon that idea. So Rifkin argues in one of his more recent books, he's been writing and uh, thinking and uh, being activist for quite a while, uh, But his argument is that we are approaching the third industrial revolution of capitalism. The first one, the first industrial revolution of capitalism, happened in the 1900s. It was brought about by three categories that we'll talk about for each industrial revolution. Transport, communication, and energy. The transport at that time was the railways. The communication was the steam-powered printing press and energy was coal. When that was introduced, we got a whole different type of capitalism. You know, prior to that, we had manpower, we had animal-powered products and and work that was done, but it was a whole different world. Then, about a hundred years later, we got the 1900s, and we had a second industrial revolution of capitalism. This second industrial revolution took us from coal to oil power, much more powerful. You know, the less work to extract, easier to transport, more things you could do with oil. We went from the railway to automobiles. Again, more flexible, more uh, distributed. There, there's a lot of advantages to the automobile. And for communication, we went from print to the telephone which was much faster. We are now just beginning, about another hundred years later, the third industrial revolution. 
and this one's going to have some interesting things. It's not just going to bring a po- bring about a new form of capitalism. It's going to challenge capitalism in certain ways, which I think is why it's so particularly important to uh, us as Marxists or other folks who are critical of capitalism. The third industrial revolution starts with the communication factor. We go from the telephone to the internet. We've got, you know, not just talking to one person at a time, but being able to look up and and view and distribute media on a mass basis uh, at any time. And now, especially with our smartphones, we, we're, we're connected all the time. You don't have to go back home or go to the library to look it up. The new energy is renewables. And the new... With, you know, sun, solar, uh, wind power, uh, hydroelectric, or uh, geothermal is even in there. And transport, we're not there yet, we're getting there, is automated transport. Autonomous vehicles, not just cars, but also autonomous drones, things like that. Basically, the idea that you can move something from one place to another place without requiring any or very minimal human supervision. Now, the thing that the new elements, these three that bring us into the third industrial revolution of capitalism, and actually industrial might be kind of the wrong word. You know, it's it's a digital revolution. The thing that they have in common is the convergence of one particular contradiction of capitalism. And I'm not sure that Rifkin uses the word contradiction, but since we're Marxists here and we love to speak in terms of the dialectic, that's the word I'm going to use. This is the contradiction of capitalism, uh, at least the one that's pertinent to this discussion. Capitalists compete with each other to lower their costs in order to gain a greater market share. If we're both capitalists in the same market and I can lower my costs, that means I can lower the price of my product or I can increase my expansion. I can do a whole bunch of things. It gives me flexibility to outcompete my competitors. The, the thing, the contradiction is that if costs go down to zero or get very close to zero even, the barrier to entry to the business is very low, and and also the, the amount of value I can command from my products, the price of my products, must also necessarily be lower as that technology becomes general. You know, if if I can monopolize that technology, then I have a great advantage. But as that technology becomes generalized, then it becomes a problem for me because it means the value created by my product is less because it requires less energy, less human time, less resources to put in to make it. I, uh, actually, as a sidebar, we don't need to super get into uh, the falling rate of profit theory because you know Marx has a particular take on it, but I will point out that this is congruent with that, that it's not the same explanation for the falling rate of profit, at least it's not framed in the same way, but it does lead to that same conclusion. Because what Rifkin points out is that 
these three new technologies, the thing that they do is reduced marginal cost. And here we have to distinguish between fixed and marginal cost. Fixed cost, of course, is the cost to start up your business. It is the building, your big machines that maybe you need just one of each, and, and other, other things that you need just one of. That's your fixed costs. And then your marginal cost is the cost to produce one more of the thing that you make. So in there, it is the labor time that is included in creating one more and the raw materials. You know, those are kind of your big ones for your marginal costs. So the thing that the new technologies have in common, the internet for communication, renewables for energy, and automated driverless transport, is that they all lower the marginal cost to zero or near zero. Think about it. For the internet, the distribution of music or articles or whatever communication element there is, is near zero. Once you have that recording, you can share that. Once you have the video produced, you can share that. It doesn't cost you nearly anything to have one more viewer of that content. For renewables, once you have your solar panel, once you have the wind turbine, there's some maintenance, but on the whole, it doesn't cost you additional units to, it doesn't cost you anything additional to have that sunbeam or to have that breeze that comes in. There's no cost for the raw materials and there's no labor involved in converting that sunbeam into electricity. You're not extracting sunbeams like you have to go extract oil. Exactly. Pay transport that. The yeah. sunbeams do not work for you. That's right. <laughs> and when it comes to transport, the driver is a massive cost in the part in on the part of transport right now. Once the driver is no longer needed, if you can have driverless cars, driverless drones delivering transporting materials, then probably your biggest cost is the energy cost. And again, we already addressed that with the production of renewable energy, how the re- the marginal cost of that renewable energy will go lower and lower and lower and trend towards zero. Then transport becomes a very small cost. It's the maintenance on your fleet, basically. So the contradiction here is that capitalism has been able to or will be able to over the next several decades lower marginal costs to so low that that they threaten the whole concept of capitalism right if if goods are infinite then capitalism no longer makes sense you can no longer turn a profit if it costs so low to produce something in the same way that you can't sell canned air to someone because there's just air everywhere it's widely abundant you know it's it's not going to get exactly to free but it's going to get to so low that it won't be a large market share you know if you look at energy companies right now they can they're an extremely important part of the economy because they cost a lot of money when energy costs very little, you could have a large market share of the economy. And first of all, you won't because it's a, a, the, another, the other aspect of these things is they're highly decentralized. 
You know, there's there's no reason why you can't have tons of people each owning their own little solar panel. In fact, it's easier to do that than to have one centralized solar farm owned by one company. You know, that's that's the model that works for an oil field. You know, oil fields are great for centralization. Solar panels, they're great for decentralization. So first of all, the companies that have been working on a centralized model, they can't, won't be able to compete with the number of decentralized players in the market. And two, even if they did grab a large market share, the cost, the, the marginal cost will be so low that it, it'll be negligible. So that's the contradiction that we're headed towards. That's the contradiction of capitalism that's coming to a head. And not maybe not the only one, but it's one. It's the pertinent one to this conversation. So then what happens? Now, the, and there are multiple ideas on this. You know, so, some folks, some economists have said what we need to do is introduce temporary monopolies because that's the only way that you can maintain the capitalist system within this framework. If you temporarily monopolize, you can still command a cost for the product even though you've driven your cost very low. Well, you know, you can try to do that, but any countries that choose not to go that route are going to outcompete you. You know, if you have temporary monopolies bumping up the cost of energy and transport and products in your nation, it's just going to make the energy and products and information and transport provided by other nations much cheaper by comparison and therefore much more viable. And that strategy, I think, is at its weakest in this particular revolution because it introduces the internet with infinitely reproducible products. And then that won't be all the products, but that's that's some of them, you know, digital files. It's a lot easier to steal those, to pirate them, um, because you're not having, well, one, you can do it from your house, and two, you're not actually ha- taking something from somebody. Oftentimes you can just copy it. And, uh, and yeah, so it's, it's easier to do that, and which undermines that monopoly, too. And we, we even see that now with, you know, paywalls and cable companies losing money to pirates and things like Netflix taking up a bigger, bigger, bigger share of the market because they make it easier to get access to a lot of different types of, of shows and movies. So, yeah. So what I've outlined so far is mainly about just a diagnostic of where we are. And mainly borrowed from Jeremy Rifkin, although he's not the only person saying these kinds of things. I just think he presents it in a good way and a good jumping off point for us as Marxists. But now we're going to come to a major difference and a, and a point where we can react and disagree and, and uh, kind of further the discussion a little bit. One of the things that Rifkin does is he consults with governments Germany and China stand out as folks that he's talked with, but also with businesses. And and not in a way, you know, not in the way that we as Marxists would. You know, he's, he's not going into businesses and saying, y'all are doomed, give up, or whatever. He's, he's trying to find the best path forward for them and then consult with them to lead them to that path. And this is what he says. He says the the thing that you need to do is slowly turn down your old production system 
let's say you're, you do energy. Slowly, you're going to produce less and less energy every year because the money will not be there for that. But what you need to become is the management system for the distribution and buying and selling of energy. Because everyone out there is going to be a, both a buyer and a producer of energy. And you just need to be the centralized hub for that. Now, he does acknowledge that there are different ways to do this, that there's a non-profit way and there's a profit way to do it. For example, Wikipedia is doing the same thing for, for encyclopedias, for general knowledge, right? But they're doing it in, an, in a non-profit way and in a, in a way that actually lines up in many ways with our beliefs as Marxists or as, or as capitalist skeptics, right? In, in the Wikipedia model... Uh, people donate their labor to produce something that's wonderful and anyone can access it uh, for free. You know, in many ways, this is a major ideological challenge to the system of capitalism. It, it, it's one of the best embodiments of the old Marxist saying, from each according to their ability, to each according to their need. People who know about something contribute, that's from their ability. And anyone who wants to know about something, that's their need, is able to find that information on there. It frees Wikipedia, too, from, like, competing forces that might want to, like, undermine the point of it, which is use use actual sources, try to have the, the best, most accurate data possible information. Because once you – what if they went a different model and they had advertisers? And an advertiser for, like, Coca-Cola said, we don't want anything negative on our page about Coca-Cola. We're going to pull – there could be pressure there for them to to it's change or censor or do something different on there other than their their mission statement. Yeah. So yeah, using that model not only has the the it, there's the moral benefit and it agrees with like the political ideology that makes sense to us, but also it frees them up from pressure outside pressures too. It makes the more more accurate, better source. Not that it's perfect, but yeah. still. On the flip side you have that same kind of model with Uber. There's a bunch of people that need rides. There's a bunch of people that are able to give those rides. And actually, I hate the term the sharing economy. That can be a whole sidebar discussion yeah, later. I hate that too. <laughs> yeah, you're not sharing your car. You're renting your car. It's renting. That's yeah. what it is. But <laughs> okay. The Uber has a bunch of contractors that are essentially employees that you know for legal reasons they want to treat them like independent contractors but basically they have employees and they have customers and they realize that they are the central power that as the management system because really uber uber doesn't give the rides it's their workers that give the rides uber doesn't buy the rides it's their customers that buy the rides you know, and in many ways, it's similar to the Wikipedia model where any given citizen, a regular person, could be one or the other or both from time to time. So that's the similarity. The difference is that Uber says, aha, but I control the central nervous system of this whole product. So what I can do is take the lion's share of the profits. I can take a big and significant cut, and I can really be the controller of this. I have power that I can exert over my drivers. I have power I can exert over my customers should I need to use it. 
they basically reproduce all of the misery and all of the problems of the capitalist system within this new model. So the interesting thing here is, while we are moving into a potential third phase of capitalism, a new industrial or digital revolution, it doesn't mean that the battle is over. It, do, it opens up a space for it, right? We've got the Wikipedia space. We can challenge that. But the, that same space can be filled by the same old, tired capitalist model. So I think the interesting thing for us as Marxists to do is to really think about each of these things as they come up. To, to look at the current situation in the terms of this new economy that's emerging and think about what can we do to influence this to set up the kind of new society that we want. For example, net neutrality is going to be very important here. If, if net neutrality is given up, that means we're moving towards that monopolistic vision, right? The idea of let's preserve profits by introducing a temporary monopoly. You know, not, not necessarily that it's the same as monopoly, but it's that same tactic. It's saying let's, let's give these centralized businesses some additional control that they don't currently have so that they can extract profits just by being the gatekeepers of the information. Same idea for um, what businesses we choose to go through, you know. What, where do we decide to bring our commerce to? And also, what startups are people working on? You know, I think that's going to be an important part. We've talked about uh, cooperatives a little bit on this program. We know that there are Marxists out there that are really into cooperatives. you got your Rick Wolfs on the one side, and then you've got your cooperative skeptics or, or kind of the folks that are dismissive of it on the other side. I think they're going to be a very important component of it. You know, there's no reason why an Uber-like service couldn't be run by the developers and the drivers as equals. You know, except for in this new vision, there probably won't be drivers based on the development. But but whatever. Who, think of any service where you have producers and then you have the centralized distribution mechanism. It doesn't have to be the case that the distribution mechanism is is controlling those consumers. In fact, I think there are there are lots of cases where it it's not happening that way. Craigslist comes to mind. Mm -hmm. That's a centralized place to go to buy and sell things, but Craigslist doesn't really exert control over the sellers on their website. Yeah, in fact, something like Wikipedia has to survive based on um, support from donations. But something like the 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 decentralized um, non Uber Uber app you're talking about, it, it'd be something where everybody who who is an Uber driver owns part of it, and they're part they're part of the decision making process. And it's something unlike Wikipedia where there's transactions being taken taking place. Like you are paying, so you can decide we're, we're going to take. 10 cents off every ride and that goes back into paying for our servers, paying for developer research. Like you can decide these things and it you don't have to look for donations, you don't have to do anything like that. You can and everything could be transparent. All the drivers are making as much as they could based on, you know, what people are willing to pay for instead of a huge profit being taken off the top. So I think 
there's a lot of things that we want to think about as Marxists coming into this. It's, you know, not only where do we put our money as consumers, but also, you know, if, you know, the, there's probably a lot of young people that listen to our show just based on, you know, who's interested in Marxism these days. And I don't know, I guess we're old millennials, I guess, is where we fall. But, you know, like, that means there's a lot of people listening who are probably thinking about what to do with their lives and where they want to put their career, things like that. I mean, I I think being part of a group of people who create the distribution mechanism for different products, for, you know, energy or for, you know, secondhand goods or for small craft goods. I mean, I'm saying the ones that already exist, right? And energy is being developed often by existing energy companies right now. But like, for secondhand goods, you've already got your Craigslist. For small handmade goods, you've got your Etsy's. But that's going to happen across all of the different um, commodity markets and service markets too, most likely. And I think an important part of what we can do is be present in those spaces to make the platforms and to be part of the discussion and to bring our political understanding of what a fair and just world is to the basic structure of the design of that future system. And, and please do, Marxists, please be part of this because there's a, the other component to the, this is a, I think there's a human misery factor here uh, because we're talking about everything you just mentioned where we're talking Craigslist and we'll talk about retail goods. Um, in all those cases where they become decentralized and automated, there's people losing jobs. And all this automation will change the amount of jobs available to people. It will, it will totally change the landscape of the, the working market. Um, and the, the labor force will be will be struggling with an ideological difference with how we look at unemployment right now, too. And if we go the route of decentralizing things, keeping them cheap, keeping them open, uh, and making them available to people, I, I think we can weather that storm into a new era well without a lot of people um, having no money or being homeless. But if if we, as, as a country, go the route where we are putting up those monopoly walls, where we're, we're Corporations are, are white-knuckled trying to hang on to the last little bits of profit they can and not caring about the fact that so many people um, don't have as much money as they used to. And th- though everything's cheap, you know, if you're not recognizing that fact, you have a lot of people who are un- unemployed. And if you, if you start to hold on trying to hold on to those profits – you're going to be cutting people out uh, from that. You're going to be making it harder for them to even live and and trying to say, hey, we can still work from this old model. Because as those 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 prices fall down, um, you know, in an ideal world, every everything's more accessible to people. But if we still think like, well, we're at a 30% unemployment rate or 40 now, oh, those people could still find jobs. It's the market. The, things will open up and things will change. Uh it get really dangerous if there's still that mentality combined with also, no, you still, we're still going to take a big profit off of your energy needs. Like that's scary and, and could hurt people. Well, and I think another important part of this, I'm glad you brought up the idea of unemployment and human labor and what do we do with that. I think that's going to be a, a critical part of this. And actually who's really probably going to suffer uh, are 
are, you know, kind of our, our Gen X folks, you know. The baby boomers will probably be about retired by the time it becomes a massive critical problem, although I'd say it's starting, it's already kind of becoming an issue. Um, and the millennials, in many ways, are already on the right track. And this is what I mean by that. I mean that for a long time, in you know, if we go to the model of what we call the second industrial revolution, the model of labor and what it meant was you do something that you don't like doing, and then you are rewarded with money that you can then go to buy things, and that's what's really fun is consuming. Like, that was kind of the model of society, is you you work, but you don't like it, but it's okay because that gives you a bunch of money, and then you can go buy things, and buying things is really fun. And in many ways, the millennial generation is totally challenging that ideology. First of all, millennials want a job that is meaningful to them. They want to make, they want to make a difference in the world. They want to do something that they feel is making the world a better place. Not because they make a big donation with the money that they earn from doing something they don't care about. They want the thing that they do on a daily basis to be something they care about. That's going to be an important part of this transformation. It's going to be something that everyone's going to have to adopt. Because I think that's that you, we, that doing labor is an important part of understanding who we are. And maybe maybe all the generations agree with that, but they, they don't what the millennial generation seems to get that the other ones don't get is that that can be, in many ways, its own reward. Mm. Uh, but it has to be meaningful, and it has to be making the world a better place. Uh, and I think that's going to be an important part of this transition, because when we have all of these tasks automated, it's going to make, you know, the, when we don't need to have someone counting the products on the shelf... When we, you know, to do inventory, when we don't need to have someone checking you out at the cash register because you bought it online and it's delivered automatically, when we don't need to have uh, somebody driving truck or whatever, like all, all of these things are going to can be can be automated and will be automated, uh, but that leaves a whole realm of of labor that speaks to the human psyche. The labor that allows people to move up the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? If you look at a lot of the stuff that people are involved in today, it's pretty low on Maslow's hierarchy. You know, I build houses in many ways. That's, you know, just shelter or, you know, I grow food or I produce products. Many of those are meeting kind of low level needs, even healthcare not that high up on Maslow's hierarchy. I think what we can see is the human race moving as a whole further up that pyramid to start talking about, you know, making our meaning of doing good in the world of self-actualization. Yeah, well, because when we automate things, those resources don't go away. 
you the resources that you gain from those in fact increase often automation and technology allows you to be more efficient uh, as far as agriculture goes and things like that so we're going to have um, more resources more food more energy available but we're going to have people <laughs> less people doing jobs or having jobs which used to be the traditional way that we decide it's okay that they get those resources yep and so now we, it eventually like that's my worry that's kind of what I was referencing before and I think you put it in really good terms it's just like Man, we could either go through a period where we're just accepting people, being a lot more people being unemployed, a lot more people being poor, and not having access to things where we want to retain these old methods. and Or we can decide that we have so many resources that are abundant, maybe you get a living wage. Uh, maybe everyone deserves uh, some place to live just because they're a human being. And we have to reconcile those. And, and, I, and one of the good things that I think technology might put us into that corner where ideologically you might be, you, you might be really hammered into that work ethic. That might be really part of your identity where someone doesn't work for it. That seems weird. That sits weird for you that they get anything. But as time goes on and we are at 30 or 40% unemployment and it's, it continues to go through no fault other than things are getting more efficient. And hey, capitalism, you wanted that edge, that comp- competing edge, efficiency, technologies, they're always going to go that direction. Well, maybe we have to rethink that at a, at a certain point. And that would be really good. But uh, uh, any of the roadblocks we hit could just mean years of people being poorer for no fault of their own. And it, and, and it being even more clear and more tragic to me um, than what we see now. I, a lot of people are poor through no fault of their own now. But also you, you could watch it and you could just say, man, as that, as that change makes ch- change happens – to technology and we still have all the resources, it, it'll just be an ideological shift of people unwilling to change the way they think about resources and who deserves what. Yeah, the interesting part here is I think the physical reality, like the physical economy, is going to end up dragging the political thinking of the population mm. because all, already our political thinking is so far behind especially here in the US and and not not to say that we're the only one but look, to look back at the presidential election not you know not to bring up uh our presidency again because it seems like we can never stop talking about it but I'm I guess now I'm I'm guilty this time I'm going to bring it up the you know Trump won partially based on really appealing to manufacturing jobs. And even Hillary Clinton went on that manufacturing. She, you know, she was trying to be a little bit more realistic, calling it smart manufacturing or advanced manufacturing. I forget the modifier she used, uh, which is a bit more honest. But the really honest thing, you know, what we really need is uh, somebody that was on that stage that said, listen, it's not happening. Those jobs are not coming back, and it's good. You know, there are going to be different jobs, and I get that you're, you've are you done one thing, and now you're going to have to do a different thing, and that kind of sucks because you got to learn something new, but that's the way it's going. Just, you know, for a long time in America, we had this problem where politics constantly talked about agriculture and we kind of acted like everyone was a small farmer and there was a big big debates over what was going to happen with you know taxes for small farmers and blah 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 for small farmers long after most people were no longer small farmers you know 
there's a very small amount of, out of the population that's small farmers today or even when those debates are going on. Same thing with manufacturing now. People are nostalgic. They're thinking right. back to when they were manufacturers. You know, lots of retired people are interested in this bring manufacturing back. Not because they need a manufacturing job, just because that's what they're familiar with. That's what they like. We it also is a time that they had a house and and or and maybe could pay for kids to go to college and and they they could have one one uh, parent working in a factory and yeah and have everything house car college and it, it it reminds them of a time that was simpler where things work like that too and and they didn't have as many worries i mean they probably still did but yeah yeah they want they want that back but it's it would, and it's also thinking like, well, do you want us as a civilization on a long enough time scale to do that? Do you want us to, to decide, well, we no longer have to create a giant drill and drill into the ground and pull up, uh, dead dinosaur goo and then, and then treat that, um, and put all the energy into doing that and burn all this energy and pull it out, um, and then pollute our air. We don't have to do that anymore. We'd actually do it so much simpler. And by the way, when that energy gets cheaper, it's easier to get to you. It's easier for you to use. In fact, you can have your own house, have solar panels on it. You can take advantage of this. Your life gets better. But the it, 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 the irony is what they're really mad at is a capitalistic system that wants to sort of cut them out because there are these rust belts where people are suffering because they were around the the they were around a one fact they were one factory town or they were part of the coal industry or something and now that stopped working for them but and they're still there and not, no support's coming but it's because the market there's no profit to be made by supporting them there's no profit to be made by by and now that's the truth of what you're saying too there's no profit to be made by bringing back those coal and fossil industries because they won't compete with new energy we've already seen that that that's it wasn't a political move to get rid of those it, it was part of the market deciding too. A, a lot of those companies could see the end in sight resource-wise, and they could also see that other startups, alternative energy startups, are doing well. And in fact, there's going to be a lot of jobs available through that in the future too. So yeah, it's it's, it's in a long-term scale for everyone. It be it's best to go that route. But even for them, and I, I just that it's it'd be so difficult, I think, in some cases, for them to see why their anger is misplaced. Um, at Obama or at, at Democrats or at anybody, at Hillary. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that that's it's just a perfect example of how we're going to have to shift how people think about these things. And it'll be really important to have people like you out there seeing ahead of time the needs, not just reacting to net neutrality is really important. It makes sense to react to that too, but thinking ahead for what we need it, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years down the road. Yeah, to to make the platforms, the you know, the digital platforms that are going to manage these systems, but also to fight those political battles mm. to say, you know, we need to make space for the idea that we have that that not everyone's going to go to work at a job that they hate to get a bunch of money that they then spend at the mall. Like we have to find a way to create a society make it politically viable to understand, one, that it doesn't cost that much to produce the needs that a human needs anymore, and two, that it's val like we have to find a way to understand the value that people create that isn't market value. 
because more and more that's what's going to happen is the really important stuff that humans are going to do is not going to be something that you put for sale on a shelf and someone you know exchanges some pieces of paper for that's it's just not going to be that way it's not even going to be you know the amazon model of that it's you know the the things people are going to do i think are going to be beyond that yeah, well, and even, you know, to go back to, like, people talking about, like, a nostalgic old days where, <clears throat> you know, working a manufacturing job could get you a good thing. People like to ignore the fact that capitalism is a system of misery. The only reason the United States had such a boom post-World War II is because Europe was destroyed. Large parts of Asia were destroyed. Like, the United States only was able to have such a ridiculous growth in standard of living because they were fixing the rest of the world that had been destroyed in order to go back to times like that we need destruction like if they want if capitalism wants to sort of uh exist again in that sort of weird super growth sphere is there needs to be massive war like that's where capitalism works well is destroying things and then paying itself to fix those things and it just it doesn't work outside of that like once once we get to this point where there's no marginal cost or almost no marginal cost it really it's it's just sort of a sad situation um the capitalists before marginal utility thinking came about uh sort of because marginal utility came up with this idea of infinite growth and before that what they did is they said oh well, we're going to grow because capitalism helps grow things. And then all of a sudden, we're just going to hit a spot where we can't grow anymore. And it's going to suck. <laughs> like, that's basically, you know, it's sort of like the, the two futures we're, we're talking about here, the multiple possible futures, is the, the old capitalist economists saw what they, I think they called it, like the, the steady state, where there was basically no growth because there was no profit. And it was going to be kind of awful because well, we made what we could, and now we just sort of have to ride it. Um, so. You know, another thing that we should bring into this is, um, I think I think we're going to have to think about the distinction between uh, money that we get for labor and money that we get for owning capital. I mean, really, to, to break down capitalism in a very simple way, those are kind of the two big ones, right? There, there's the working class who gains money via, by exchanging their labor, and there's the capitalist class who gains money by simply owning the means of production that labor wouldn't have access to if it weren't for their ownership of it. As we move to that zero marginal cost, that means the need for labor goes down and down and down. So any amount commanded, any... Uh, market value that is commanded by that product is going to be market value that is driven by ownership. Especially if we go that monopoly route, which, mm-hmm. you know, it is very regressive and backward looking and, and trying to prop up a capitalism that doesn't really have a footing to or, or a reasoning to exist. But, you know, to the extent that our government goes that route, I think it's going to highlight that major contradiction. And and that should be something that we as Marxists are willing to talk about to say, look, 
There are people that happen to have a lot of money. There are people that happen to have very little. The people that have a lot, they may have worked hard for it or they may not have. Maybe they inherited it. Maybe maybe they got it because they did something that was destructive to the environment or because they ripped off their customers or whatever. So, you know, we get, we have to acknowledge the fact that the folks that have a lot of money aren't necessarily virtuous. You know, that's that's a kind of a perpetual myth that capitalism perpetuates in many very subtle ways. But we have to address that and say, look, if we go this monopoly route, we're inherently valuing that while the the option to make money via exchanging your labor has gone away. You know, it's it's taking it's just basically going to say, uh, you happened to land here, you happened to land here, you will be greatly rewarded for where you happen to land, and you will suffer perpetual misery forever and ever because of where you landed. Yeah. And and that that's something that we need to be willing to discuss and, and bring forward as Marxists, because I think that, one, brings in the distinct idea of capitalism. You know, that's what capital is. Capital is the idea that you know, you use a free market, but you reward labor to the extent that uh, they have to be paid to in order to show up. And then you reward capital based on the fact that they have exclusive access to the tools that create wealth. And the more we keep that idea that you can reward people with money just based on the fact that they have exclusive rights to something that everybody wants and needs... That, you know, I think that's going to be one of the major contradictions or the, the major issues that we want to bring forward. Because putting in those – in that framework, the labor side and the capital side – because capitalists aren't paying the laborers just because they feel like they deserve it. They're paying, like you said, what they need to in order to get them to come, but also because they the capitalists need them to produce goods. And as that goes down – there's no reason. There's no. There's no moral reason. There's no directive within capitalism to continue paying people and to helping them, um, and that that just puts it in that contradiction into good terms for me because you have all these people that their labor value is disappearing, um, but they're the ones that would be buying the goods, by the way. But that's disappearing, and then but all you have left when all you have left is that capital value. It just looks like a. It just looks like a puppet show. It just looks so goofy. Like it doesn't make sense. It's so lopsided. And I, I think I mentioned this before in other episodes, but I think I'm somewhat of like a a technological. Uh, I believe it's going to be part of our, our salvation. I'm like a, a an optimist. A, yeah, like like that will be our ladder out of these dark ages of of capitalism. If if in the future we do look back on it that way, um, and and that might not be the case, but I do think looking back that technology has been the the reason for a lot of. Um, ideological, political, social changes in the world in the past. And this could be one where it, this is a, a lot, like you said, a lot of the things that are sort of the subtle contradictions and the, the, the subtle inequalities of capitalism will come into such mu- much sharper focus because of this technological change where the way everything works is different but we're still thinking about it how it used to work and we'll have to reconcile that. And maybe if things stayed how they used to work, maybe you'd have different problems that you encounter eventually, but maybe you'd never really have to address it in this way. So 
I'm always hopeful, and I'm hoping technology leads us into into better years instead of into le- leading us into more and more trouble. Yeah, I, I like thinking about it, uh, listening just to the conversation. You can basically sum us up with the old socialism or barbarism. Like, that that's sort of where we're saying we're at. Yeah, is that Luxembourg? Yeah. And I, I think that's, you know, with the technology, too. Like, technology in itself is sort of apolitical, but, like, the way it's developed. Like, now technology is developed not just for the betterment of mankind, but for the advancement of profit, the reducing of the marginal utility costs. Um, and so I, I always, and maybe it's just me, um, but when I think of, like, human history, like, from hunter-gatherer um, that we were for, you know, uh, millennia, to, like, agriculture and civilizations and stuff. I always think of, like, that sort of centralization and, like, adoption of technology as basically people, like, we're trying to get more out of doing less. Like, you know, as, you know, humans have been around for, like, 100,000 years, and civilization has only been around for, like, 15,000 at the very most. And most of that time, we were not really had many tools, but then once we started to develop more tools and stuff, you know, the labor people had to do for stuff, we could start to do other things. And I sort of feel like capitalism has sort of obscured the fact that technology, at least in my mind, has been used to make it so humans can do less so that we can have more. Whereas capitalism has found a way to sort of turn that on its head and sure. sort of perverted what I would say is the natural order of things. It's a really interesting way to think about it because you're right. Like even the most primitive tools that were created, like I, I learned recently about a, a water hammer at, because through an awesome um, YouTube channel, which is it, it's escaping me the name of it, uh, but it's it's a, it's a guy who just post videos about him creating primitive technologies and and essentially a lot of them are just replacing hu- calories burned by a human with some other force be it gravity or water water hammer base it, you just allow water to drain into a log so that it fills up it's kind of on a pivot so it drains into one side and it fills up and then rolls out so the log falls down so the water em- fills it up so it lifts up um, and then the water drains out, so it falls down and smacks something. Whether you're breaking rocks to to make clay, uh, some you know mix that with water. Whether you're breaking open coconuts or, or nuts, it's replacing human energy with energy in the world around you. Now we've gotten to the point where we're trying to use the energy from the the sun directly and things like that. But yeah, that's the exact progression, and that was the goal in that moment. Is think of how many more nuts you can get um, without needing more people, more food less people needed it like that's the idea and yeah and that could have gone forever except you start to get that hierarchy that power that control over the resources yeah interesting have any of you seen the movie elysium Mm-mm. i haven't either so this may be a good thing <laughs> to talk about no, but i want to talk about it for an I've hour i've heard people talking about it and i guess in this like people they've basically developed medical technology that like can basically bring you back to life but they have like the rich people have like left and have this technology and have just left the poor people like behind and like that's sort of like i could sort of see that future with this sort of stuff like right like you know if you bring that technology to the masses everybody's way better but it, you hoard it away for your own personal 
it's an extreme extension of kind of what we're talking about here, yeah. but it's a, it's a good way to point out why it's wrong. Now yeah. we all need to watch that movie. <laughs> well, and, uh, you know, the, the, I think that's another a point of living in different worlds. That's, you know, kind of a, a, a very highlighted example when you leave the planet or whatever. But that's happening within our own planet right now in many ways and in becoming, I think, increasingly segregated where you've got gated communities and, you know, I've heard about, you know, apart there's like mixed apartment buildings but you mm. have one entryway for some rooms and one entryway for other rooms so even though within the building you have mixed social classes they never have to interact with each other and so we you know i think that's something that we're going to have to fight as well uh on the left because um people can become very callous when they don't understand the situation of others when they never have to interact outside of their bubble yeah uh so th- i th- i think that's gonna have to be an important part of just like understanding and changing political thinking and and developing the th- the starting point of understanding that we need to develop the future world yeah that exposure is really important and i think it's one of the reasons that you, you'll see big cities being more left-leaning and, and blue as far as blue versus red state type um, of voting scheme uh, because you have exposure to a lot of other types of people and you're, you're around them and you start to empathize and you start to understand them. And that, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's vital. And, and another reason why I think technology is great, it, the Internet's given us that in some new ways. And there's downsides to that. There's downsides to every new technology. The Internet makes it available for whatever um, horrible, like, racist rant you want to go on. You'll probably find somebody who agrees with you. But it also allows people to, to connect and understand uh, people who are completely outside their living experience. There, there are people in different countries that that grew up in it, like watching the the Syrian refugees, seeing the, the the their plight, learning about their families, couldn't have done that even even in the nineties with like the with the evening news. I couldn't have done that. Maybe there would be a movie that I might find like a documentary at my local store, but that kind of access and being able to do it from a smartphone as a refugee and being able to connect to people. Um, it, decentralizing the means to be able to do that you know allowing them to connect to me without someone else like giving them permission to being able like we gotta we gotta support those things gotta support that neutrality we gotta support that exposure too gotta seek it out so stay active listeners that's what we're asking i think trump has helped us trump's light lit a bit of a fire under people but you know use this momentum and look ahead too it's hard to reduce people to a stereotype when you're forced to confront them, actually, and you know, see that they're a complicated human being just like everybody else. Yeah, especially when the arguments against them are so one-dimensional and treat them as non-human beings. Like if you've never met a gay person before and you've been told that they shouldn't be parents to kids because they're amoral and the kids will be messed like, you know, there shouldn't be gay parents or that they, they breed vice in, in a neighborhood and that kind of ridiculous logic. And then you meet one and you think, oh my gosh, this is just a person who's in my calc class with me. 
this is just a person who is a friend of my friend and we chatted at the bar and they like the same shows as me and they grew up in a very similar household like and then you're and then you're done and then all those arguments that were based on nothing they 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 disappear because you pull out that bottom jenga piece that was i'm uh, i'm only using the fact that you're not around them to to use to get you to be convinced of what i'm saying so yeah conservatives do drink the blood of babies though <laughs> i've never met a baby so that could be true yeah, that's, that's probably true <laughs> Marxism Today is created by Red Wagner and Tony Schmidt and is a project of the Democratic Socialists of America, Madison, Wisconsin chapter. We are not official spokespeople of the DSA, and the views expressed in this podcast are ours. You can find us on Twitter at RedWagner2, that's the number two, and SchmidtAJ, S-C-H-M-I-T-T-A-J. Our episodes are all available for download on our blog, marxismtoday.wordpress.com You can also share your thoughts about this episode and others on our subreddit reddit.com slash r slash marxismtoday all one word. You can also find information about the Democratic Socialists of America Madison chapter on our Facebook page facebook.com slash dsamadison Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.